0: Have these songs been so encouraging? Where could I go but to the Lord? Songs that remind us in such a great way about the nature of our life in Christ, the blessing to be found in Him, and the great reward that awaits those that are the faithful. It's so good to see each and every one today that we've been blessed with the opportunity to come and to gather in the way that we have on this first day of the week to offer our worship to the God who made us. It certainly is true that as we come together today to give thought to this part of our service, to reflect at least for a portion on the Word of God. Brother Josh read just a moment ago from the 10th chapter of the book of Ezra. We'll be revisiting that passage in just a moment. And as we do that, we're going to give some attention to the question. You'll notice on the wall behind me, it may be a startling question. It may be a question that in many ways has behind it a rather strange sound. One of the things we shall do is lift high the beauty, the banner, the trustworthiness connected to God's description of marriage. But as we do that, we will certainly also turn our attention to thinking somewhat of divorce and ask, does God command it? If so, on what terms and what might be said about God's approach to that? It is with that in mind, these, this slide before us is one that basically asks the consideration I just raised for each of us to note. In John chapter 6, verse number 60, you may recall the Lord had preached a message that in fact sounded harsh to some. It was such that in so doing, it brought about a a reaction you and I recalled, not only from those who heard, but in some instances, even from others on that occasion. Today, as we ask about this nature of the Word of God... Let's first of all do it as follows. On this slide, let's devote a moment to reflecting on the sweetness, the biblical presentation, the exquisiteness that goes with the Bible's description of marriage. Might we note that in terms of the way in which many matters of the human family are presented, it is ultimately the basis that touches the subject of marriage. How sweet is the Bible's description of it. You may notice on that slide, can you and I easily remember the fact that Jesus, in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, He and His apostles, they attended a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Now you and I aren't told who it was that was getting married. It was apparently a family friend. At the very least, appears to have been someone rather close to Mary, Jesus's mother. But you and I noticed the Lord's attendance, the fact He worked His first miracle there, the connection that went with the sweetness of that moment, and yet many of the Lord's parables connected also to what you and I would recognize in marriage. That's only one passage. Look at some of the other ones. In Proverbs 18, verse number 22. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. In the next chapter, Proverbs 19, 14 That wife, it's of the Lord. She, of course, is to be noted as a prized possession for sure. One by one, as the Word of God testifies to us, the grandeur of the state that the Bible identifies as marriage. Doesn't it begin in many ways with this observation? When Jesus was asked about marriage in Matthew 19, one of the first reactions He gave in verses 4, 5, and 6 was this. Have you not read... And He took them back to the scene in Genesis chapter 2, and then He made this observation, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That kind of an observation, as it rolled off the lips of our Lord, was such that it redounded in the hearts of those who heard Him that day with the Lord's intent for the permanence connected to marriage and the features that you might well notice that we shall see later in the lesson today as well. There's no question that that idea of marriage came from God and that it is in a state that He highly approves of so long as the conditions connected to it are met. You may notice about the middle of that slide, that union between a husband and his wife is sufficiently strong and sufficiently profound that it's described on three different biblical occasions as being one flesh. Though two human beings they are, they have been so joined, so united, so entire and complete in that way that they are called one flesh. In fact, we found that in Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. We found it also in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. And finally, that beautiful description about the church in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. But all of that helps us then see this. With it being said about the goodness and the greatness of marriage as God has described it. The latter part of that opening slide is this. Our God hates divorce. Marriage itself is a covenant. A covenant that in fact lifts so highly that in Malachi 2.14, 15 and 16, it's described as this covenant held to an esteem and held to a place in which biblical covenants are to be understood. Now, sometimes people aren't very faithful to their covenants. When God ever presented one, you and I know He was always true and faithful to it. And yet the Bible highlights even marriage as a covenant, so strongly presented in the language of Malachi, the second chapter. Our God hates divorce because at the very least, even under the best of circumstances, it means this which was intended to be permanent and this which was intended to be a strong fortress against the matters that so often will wash against the people in a family. That was to be a maintaining feature. At this point then, with regard to God hating divorce and with regard to the sweetness connected to marriage... It might be fair to ask, so who is eligible to marry? Does God have any statements about that point? I've tallied for you at the bottom of that slide, and maybe we could begin like this. According to the Word of God, a person who's never been married would in fact be a person eligible to marry, all other things being equal. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 2, to avoid fornication, a man needs to have his own wife. So if one's going to enjoy sexual favors in any way, you have to be married. And your wife will be the one that offers, makes that available. Otherwise, any other such thing would be fornication. But not only that, what about the second one I've listed for your consideration? Also, what about that person? It's understood to have a mental faculty. You and I know entering into marriage is a decision. It is something that needs to be recognized in light of the lifelong permanence that's intended to go with it. One must have a soundness in heart and mind to permit that kind of a decision. Sure enough, in that way, whenever we encounter marriage in the Bible, like this one in Genesis 24, Rebecca understood that which was involved. She thus agreed to become Isaac's wife. And in so doing, we see just one example Otherwise, in the Word of God, wherein that appreciation is to be noted. In the third place, I've invited you to notice an individual whose spouse has died. Based on Romans 7, verses 1 through 4. You may notice there that a husband is bound to his wife so long as, again, as both are alive. But if he's dead, she is loosed from the the bond of her husband And she may then choose to marry again. But isn't it true that death brings a point of severance, at least in matters you and I would connect to that estate of marriage. And thus God grants the living spouse the opportunity to marry again. But as we shall see later, there is a statement about only in the Lord. The next part of that slide. What about a divorced person? That is to say, one whose spouse is still alive. One has to be the innocent party. That is to say, based on Matthew 19, we read the following passage. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery. And so it's entirely possible that one whose spouse is still alive, but if that spouse was the one who committed fornication then that spouse could be put away, and then the innocent party would have the blessing of God to appropriately remarry. But at that point, you and I note this. By and large, that closes the Bible's description. I chose to list one more, at least for our modern day, which one might have thought would never need to be emphasized. God does say that marriage involves one man and one woman. Two men can't marry each other and two women can't marry each other, according to the law of God at least. And yet you and I see in this the biblical statement of what would constitute the marriage that would be pleasing in his sight. At this point though, where does it bring us? It brings us to slide number two. Because man has made many messes connected to this. And it's been true really since even Genesis the fourth chapter. That is to say, these matters are not new. That is to say, these things are not new issues that the human family has confronted. They have been around a very long time. It would thus behoove us to understand well and to implement in a grand way so that we could be the proper example for those whom we may influence in the generations that are behind us. The messes that man has made, might, it, might you note know with me how we might begin that, st- that, that statement. We just noticed a moment ago who, according to the sight of God, is eligible to marry. Anyone who's not eligible themselves cannot enter into marriage, but might we take note? One person who is eligible, if you choose to marry someone who is not your marriage is still not right because that person is ineligible in the sight of God to marry. And so it is that we might note in many cases that no doubt has been a part of those messes that the human family has chose to make. Near the top of that slide we might well begin like this. Those messes, as I noted earlier, have been a constant part in many ways of both Old and New Testament. And as those instances were presented, we're going to start with the children of Israel. Each of us would agree the children of Israel had been given the law of God, and that included statements with regard to marriage. Would you revisit with me this the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy? While Moses was still alive, even he, by virtue of the revelation of God, presented the following things to the children of Israel. You and I might note about the nature of what was said concerning their marriages. Quite often, we're very well aware of the fact God said things like, make sure to keep a Sabbath day. He said things such as, make sure that you worship me and no one else. And He said, make sure that you honor your dad and your mom. And we understand all of that. Sometimes it's easy, I suppose, to overlook. Well, he also had things to say about those other, shall we say, personal matters in life. In Deuteronomy 7, the following statements were made. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou, And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. You and I can be well aware of the fact of what here God had indicated. To those fathers, let's say, as well as mothers, don't you ever give your daughter to marry a son of one of these nations that God has pronounced should not be married into. And furthermore, don't you ever give approval to your son to marry one of their daughters. Now you could well imagine, the son might say, but Dad, I love her. There's something more important than that. There's something that stands higher in regard than that. And by the same token, the daughter might say, but Dad, don't you know? He means everything to me. It doesn't change what God said. And it doesn't change the wisdom that goes with what God said would ultimately happen. Don't you know that in light of that, we then can come to the next text. I've invited you to consider God's law was plain enough. I wonder what happened in days as they passed on by. With regard to the choices and in regard to the decisions the children of Israel made. You may notice about the middle of that slide. It does, let me go back to that one. It does bring us to a statement that Joshua made, which sounds quite similar to the one we just read, but perhaps to the lesson text in the book of Ezra. I promised a moment ago we would give some consideration to that 10th chapter of Ezra. The book of Ezra, if I might just take a moment to share some of the history, certainly only a small amount, but it does have a bearing on some of that which we shall see. The children of Israel later went into Babylonian captivity. They spent 70 years there. And as a consequence, they found themselves in a foreign place amongst a foreign people with all kinds of different laws and all kinds of different behaviors. And yet, they had been told the law of Moses is what they were to keep. Doesn't matter where you're living. Doesn't matter other characteristics of the people surrounding you and their behavior. You are dedicated to God by way of the law of Moses. And so it was that many years passed. Consider for a moment how many years we are now talking. Over 900 years had passed from the time God had given that law of Moses until the time of which we now are about to read. Almost a millennium. One thing about that you and I can readily see, the passage of time doesn't take away the Word of God. The passage of time does not remove God's Word from the power and strength with which it was initially provided. And yet, as we reach the days of Ezra, the people had returned from Babylonian captivity. That is to say, they had moved back into the Jerusalem area, at least many of them. And as they came back, they had the intent to reestablish their life in service to God. They had begun to rebuild the temple. I might say as we come to this chapter, though in Ezra, the temple is not the primary concern. There were other matters of great concern. Would you come with me to the 10th chapter? I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we will read selected verses in that chapter, but it says the following. Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, There assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. It's clear that whatever was taking place at this moment was a matter of great moment. Ezra was, in fact, falling down on the ground before the Lord in an effort to beseech the blessing of God in, in, in regard to this subject. You notice that the people, both men and women and children, were gathered, and they were crying profusely. I wonder what had agitated them so. What was troubling the people of Israel so on this occasion? What was bothering them? The previous chapter had told us. All I would invite you to do is note the following. Verse number 2 of Ezra chapter 9. As chapter 9 had moved on into chapter 10, it was a continuation, and this is what had caused an issue and a problem. It says, For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. Now we've learned the problem. Their marriages weren't right. They had married individuals that God had forbidden them to marry. They had entered into these arrangements, and they were recognized as marriages, no doubt about it. But they were marriages displeasing to God. You may notice in verse number 5 of chapter 9, Ezra's reaction, At the evening sacrifice I rose up from my heaviness, having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. Ezra's heart was breaking. He had received information and word that these things had happened. Now let's go back to chapter 10. What then befell the people in regard to this? We've learned a moment ago that their heart was such that they had been crying bitterly. They had been crying much about this. Now let's read on. Verse number 2, Ezra chapter 10. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Several truths to be noted. First, as Shechaniah pointed out, one has to have a recognition of one's own sin in this. There has to be an understanding that I have transgressed that which is the law of God. It can't just be an issue for someone else. I have failed in this. You and I need to appreciate that a land in which so many marriages are not according to the Word of God need to understand any resolution will begin there in understanding there's a problem. But then Shekinah went on to say this, We've taken strange wives of the people of the land, but there's hope. There is no sin for which one cannot make it right before God. The blood of Christ is sufficiently able, sufficiently strong and capable to take care of any sin so long as God's Word is utilized in the approach to Him. Shekinah even affirmed there's hope in this matter. We now will read... What is it that was the hope? What was the case to be done? In the verses that follow, could I now bring us to verses 10 and 11, those that Brother Josh read earlier in our study today. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. Now in the meantime, Ezra had said, bring everybody here and you got three days to come. The matter was so urgent The matter was so serious, it couldn't wait indefinitely. It had to be dealt with immediately three days, and now it says, it was the ninth month, I'm sorry, verse number 10. Well, let's finish verse number 9. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and taken taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do His pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. The Word of God had given commandment to them back in Deuteronomy that it was going to be needful that they remain distinct and separate as the holy seed of God. And that included, of course, they were not to intermarry with those Canaanite peoples. And now God's word through Ezra was this. You've got to separate from them. You've got to divorce them. Because these marriages in which you are, are not pleasing to God, and therefore, you need to separate from them. Might you and I take note that the remainder of that chapter, chapter number 10, presents to us a lengthy list of names, and you and I have before us that shall stand to the end of time. A list of the priests that were guilty of this trespass. May I call your attention to verses 18 through 43. Dozens of names listed of those who in fact had taken these strange wives and therefore the text now says they were happy in the sense of following the hope that had been presented to them of separating from those wives. The last verse of the chapter summarizes it like this. All these had taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Even if they had children, that didn't by itself mean continuing to stay together because God's Word had presented to them the needfulness, the importance of following His command in that regard. You may notice as you approach the bottom of that slide, As the people made that realization and the particular description provided to them, let's come to this next slide. Because in the 10th chapter of Ezra, you and I would be quick to say, that's an Old Testament example. That is to say, though a true example indeed, it describes a scene and a time and a place very different from us under the days of the Old Testament. What about the New Testament era? Is there instances today in which God would command divorce? We notice He did it then. It was that which was to take place in order to follow through with the commandment of the God of heaven. Today, I've invited you to note near the top of that slide, Matthew the 19th chapter. It is a passage that rings with such prominence as the Lord Himself described these matters. As you and I reflect upon that ninth verse in particular of that chapter, again, only a brief comment or two as we make our way to it. But the Pharisees had approached our Lord and asked Him a question. Verse number three, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? That is to say, does it matter the reason for which one obtains a divorce? Now that question not only is a prized one today, but certainly it was then as well, else they wouldn't have asked it. In verse number 3, it does point out that the reason they asked it was to tempt Him. It appears they really weren't that interested in hearing the truth. They just wanted to trap Jesus. But aren't we blessed that the Lord always speaks the truth? And therefore, what He affirmed is a needful matter for you and me today as we appreciate the marriage law of God. The Lord first called their attention back to the scene of the creation in Genesis chapter 2 in which marriage was instituted and marriage came to be a reality. There, in verses 23 and 24, we well recall that Adam first made this statement, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But then God joined in that refrain when He said, A man is to leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Isn't it interesting, in regard to that statement, the Lord referred to it and said, Have you not read? That is a prime descriptive of what still is true in regard to the principles and premise of marriage today. Have you not read? Multiplied thousands of divorces granted every day in this country. How many meet the conditions requisite in the Word of God? How many of them are offered with the thought that there was one that committed fornication and the innocent one is obtaining a divorce? Relatively few. We all understand that we've arrived at a point in which there's such a thing in man's eyes as a no-fault divorce. Go secure the services of a lawyer, you can get a no-fault divorce for about $150. That tells you about how much we care about marriage in this country. A travesty, to to, to say the very least. And yet, going back to the very beginning when Adam and Eve were married, we understand God's intent was so much greater than that. On that slide, it takes us back to Matthew, the 19th chapter, when in that discussion that continued, then in verse 6, the highlight was stated, "...what God has joined together, let not man put asunder." And Paul later reiterated that in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. It's at that point that we arrive at the ninth verse wherein the Lord gave this final elaboration. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries the one put away in that way does commit adultery. And so it is that as the Lord made that statement, He has set before us what we must understand and embed so strong in the hearts of our youngsters and those whom whom we may influence. The best time to prevent this is not after the marriage has happened. It's long before it. So that a person will understand what's involved in marriage, what's required to be pleasing to God, and to make that marriage as God would have it to be. The sweetness that went with it, and the strength that went with it, was strong enough that even those who heard it made this statement in verses ten through twelve. Have you ever thought about what they said to Jesus, Lord? If the man, if it be so between a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. You and I could easily hear what was in the tone of their voices. You see, they apparently were under the impression that as hard as that was, that apparently is harder than what they thought the will of God was, and yet. Jesus said that is the will of heaven today. Isn't it interesting then to notice that allows us to come near the close of that slide and say it like this, does God command divorce? As much as He hates the thought of it, there are times when just as it was in the days of Ezra, it would be commanded. If one's marriage is an adulterous one, there could be no repentance without divorce. There could be no right standing before God in that circumstance. Is it any wonder, as you and I close that slide, we might note this. The Lord's statement about adultery in that ninth verse of Matthew 19 is a statement that, again, presents to us a careful understanding. So if an individual marries someone who has been divorced and they were not the innocent party, then even though you might be eligible to marry yourself, that person is not. And therefore, to marry that person, you bring yourself under condemnation. Because the Lord said, Whoso marries her does commit adultery. And the statement the Lord made, and the verb tense as He used, highlighted the ongoing nature of that sinful estate. It's not a one-time issue. It's a continuing matter Let's face it, our Lord knew what the language was. He could use the verb tenses that He meant. The fascinating part of all of that leads us to notice that as the Lord taught about marriage and He highlighted the features connected to it, He presented a powerful lesson to them, and He continues to do so to you and me as well. On this slide, you may notice one more thing about those messes. We have some examples in the Bible under the pages of the New Testament, in which we read about those who found themselves in circumstances. Let's just briefly look at a couple of them and notice the circumstances that with how it was addressed. In Matthew the 14th chapter, you might recall that there John the Baptist was a gentleman under description, and you may recall that his death is highlighted. The situation was this. John spoke to a gentleman, as I pointed out to you, Herod. The marriage you are now in, Herod, is not right. That is to say, the woman to whom you are now married, you have no right to her. Now that took a lot of nerve and bravery and courage on John's part to address a person in that high of a civil position and to tell him that the woman that he was married to, she's actually another man's wife. In fact, it was one of his relative's wives, Herod Philip's wife. But yet, Herod here had married her, and John said, it's not lawful for you to have her. You see, there is a law of God connected to marriage. And in this case, Herod had broken that law, and John told him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And you and I recall John finally lost his head because of this. What about another example, the last one on the slide? In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 10, and 11, as you and I revisit that passage, there are several things that might be noted about it, but surely one of them touches in a strong way our description of the morning. Allow me to read only those three verses, and let's make some brief comments. "'Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God?' Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye're washed, but ye're sanctified, but ye're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't it amazing and also so encouraging to notice... Paul directly told the truth to these Corinthians. There was a time in life some of you were drunkards, he told them. Some of you were fornicators, he told them. Some of you were homosexuals, he told them. Some of you were adulterers. Some of them were engaging in an adulterous circumstance, perhaps a marriage that was not right. Did you notice verse 11? What happened? What did they do about this? It now says, Ye are washed. Ye are sanctified. Ye are justified. What they had been is what they then not were. They were no longer that way. They had obtained forgiveness. If they before had been practicing homosexuals, they stopped. If they had been in adulterous marriages, they got divorces. If they had been drunkards, They quit drinking. All the other things in that list, they now were washed. There is no sin the blood of Christ cannot cleanse. There is no sin the blood of Christ cannot wipe clean. We have to be willing to follow those instructions and come to the Lord as He has indicated. Let's close our lesson today then in that very way like this. We have given attention today to the blessedness of the marriage estate and how wonderfully and highly the Bible describes it as a citadel of strength for that man and woman, and yea, all that will be involved in that family throughout life. That kind of description is sorely needed in our world today when our world doesn't take promises very seriously in many cases. And yet, we notice that when God commanded divorce in the Old Testament, many did it, Ezra chapters 9 and 10. And in the New Testament, the Corinthians, again, when that was commanded of them, they did it. Doesn't he remind us, among other things, about how wonderfully is our privilege of teaching our youngsters so that they will understand the natures of and select their mate in such a way that these kind of issues will not be a problem. But also to remind ourselves that we can teach others and encourage them and remind them of God's laws concerning marriage. Today, as we each invite ourselves to examine ourselves whether we're in the faith. Second Corinthians thirteen five. This is a fine opportunity and a convenient one. If anyone in this audience today would have that need to come humbly before the, the very law of God, we would certainly issue the Lord's invitation. This song of encouragement has been selected, and we'll use that as a time to invite anyone who might have that desire and need to come to do so at once. While together we stand in what we sing.